Heavenly Father, we thank you for the absolute privilege to have to open your word, uh, to know you through your word, and to know your great love for us shown in Jesus. Uh, please help us by your spirit as we work through uh, Nehemiah 4 this morning. Uh, show us Christ. Show us how we're supposed to live for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you uh, remember Nehemiah chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago, uh, or if you weren't here, uh, Nehemiah chapter 3 was a picture of God's people, unified, united at work, everyone was involved, it was all happy, chappy, most of the part anyway, it was peaceful, things were looking bright, and that's how sometimes we see the Christian life, it's happy, peaceful. Things are smooth sailing, and there's no issues in the world. But as we get to chapter 4, as Tim's just read out, we get a huge shock because this unity, this teamwork that we saw just a moment before, it gets tested, it gets trialed, and we see pushback to God's work here, the opposition from outside. Today we're going to hear more about this opposition uh, people who've already been introduced to us in Nehemiah already, uh, centering in this person of Sanballat. Uh, we've just heard chapter 4. Uh, Sanballat, I don't know what you think, but he comes across to me as a classic bully. He's a pot stirrer kind of guy. And while this chapter, it has great leadership tips, has great strategic lessons, uh, we need to remember that God's Word, it isn't a leadership manual. It's revealing to us the God who reigns, the God who saves us in Jesus, as we've remembered this morning in communion. Uh, so we're going to unpack this passage, as we've done all through the series so far. We're going to think about what it means for us as followers, as disciples of Jesus today. And we're going to ask, how does this part of God's Word remind us of the gospel? How does it encourage us in living for Jesus? And how does this challenge us to keep growing in Jesus too? Today's chapter divides into three parts. Uh, each part begins with the opposition hearing something, reacting to that something. And then we see Nehemiah and the people respond to the opposition as they continue to build the wall. And let's have a look at the first part, starting at verse 1. Now, when Sam Ballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Remember Sam Ballot? He's the ruler of the army of Samaria to the north of Jerusalem. Uh, he's the guy in chapter 2, verse 19, ridiculing the Jews, and he's described here angry, enraged. He sees this wall going up, and he's not happy. He's not happy that Jerusalem, God's city, is being rebuilt. And this leads to a public show of jeering, ridiculing, mocking, and taunting uh, this wall-building effort. He makes these jokes in front of his army, what are these feeble Jews doing? It's a personal insult. They're feeble, a despised and shamed people. Will they restore it for themselves? He laughs at their competence. 
Can this bunch of ragged people actually build a proper wall? Will they sacrifice, questioning if they'll ever finish to sacrifice and celebration? Will they finish up in a day? Are they just going to give up in a day's time? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Why are they reusing these ruined stones to make a defensive wall? You see, Sanballat the bully in these first few verses, he pokes fun at God's people. Even Tobiah, his sidekick, chimes in in verse 4. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. He's also poking fun at the quality of this rebuilding work. So Sam Ballot, he hears about the rebuilding, he reacts to it, and now we see Nehemiah and the people's response. And the first thing he does here is that he prays. Verse 4, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where their captives do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. I think our first response uh, to this sort of joking and jeering around is probably to ridicule back and push back ourselves, to get equally angry or even to do the opposite and to hide away and stop serving God. But Nehemiah, he firstly gives this to God in this confronting prayer. This prayer, this bold prayer, asking for justice, for retribution and judgment, but ultimately, he asks for God to act. But that's not all, because after Nehemiah prays at the work, it doesn't stop, it continues the prayer seems to give the people more confidence to keep working. Verse 6 says, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. You see, it's a great moment here for the rebuilding work. Even amidst this opposition, the wall and all the sections now joined together and built to half its full height. You see, the opposition's efforts in this first section have fallen flat. And through the faith, unity, and energy of this feeble people, God's work continues to progress. Well, as we keep going, we're moving through this chapter pretty fast. Uh, The opposition intensifies in the next section. And we need to remember as we read this chapter that while these aren't global superpowers at odds, these are real nations or real people groups who occupy significant territory at odds with one another. And we see this most clearly as we get to verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashtadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem 
and to cause confusion in it. You see, Samballot, remember, he's to the north of Jerusalem and Judah. He's now joined by the Ammonites, including Tobiah to the east, the Arabs to the south, and even the Ashdodites occupying a sliver to the west before the sea. And this group of four nations surrounding Judah, after hearing the progress of the war, are signaling the next section in this chapter, they form a league of allied nations like the United Nations, plotting together against Jerusalem, working together, threatening to use even force to stop this wall, God's wall, being built. Verse 11 says, And our enemy said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Then again, we see how Nehemiah again responds and the people respond to this opposition. Again, it's the first thing that he does. It's the same as before. He prays. The people pray. Verse 9. And we pray to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. You see, God's people in the face of opposition They're quick to prayer. They're quick to come before their great God. But God's people, they didn't stop there. They briefly stopped work, and they set a guard to protect the people. You see, the opposition and danger, they were real. In verse 10, their morale was down. In verse 12, the Jews living outside the walls were scared. And in verse 13, we see Nehemiah's plan. So on the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open spaces, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. The work on the wall temporarily stopped, and the people were placed on guard. They were put in the most visible parts of the wall as a visible statement to the opposition to say, we know you're there. We know your threat. We know... You want to attack us, and we're ready. But as we keep reading, as they guarded the walls, their confidence, their strength, it wasn't in their own pithy spears, swords, and bows. Their confidence wasn't in themselves. In verse 14, Nehemiah reminds them and us that their strength is in God. Have a read, and I looked And arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Again, just like in the first section, the people, they're called to look upward. Remember the Lord. He's the one ultimately working and fighting the battle. Verse 14 ends on enemy alert. But as we come to the third and final section of this chapter, signaled by Sam Ballot and his friends hearing again, uh, we see Sam Ballot's attempts fail yet again. Have a look at verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, 
we all return to the wall, each to his work. You see, the allied nations of Sambalat, they find out that the Jews were ready for their attack. And this time, Sambalat, he doesn't jeer, he doesn't threaten. His reaction here is nothing, silence. And Nehemiah, he credits the great and awesome God who's been fighting for them and working against their enemies. And guess what? The people, they get back to work. The work that was paused now resumes and they keep on keeping on. But the work looks a bit different now. It looks like building and guarding, both at the same time. We see this in verse 16. Half the servants worked, half the servants guarded. They were armed with weapons. Verse 17, those working are also ready to defend. Leaders were overseeing the work, and they were also looking out for threats. Those carrying large objects like rubble or supplies, they carried with one hand and held a weapon in their other hand. I don't know how they did that. The builders, they built and they had swords on their belts. But again, even with weapon in hand, they weren't trusting in themselves alone. Verse 19 makes clear that their trust is in God alone. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we separate on the wall far from one another in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. You see, amidst all their planning, all their guarding of themselves, they declare this great truth that I think has been echoing all through this chapter. Our God will fight for us. Our God, he will work, he will judge, he will bring retribution. He is great and awesome. Our God is for us. Verse 21 to 23 continues to show God's people building and guarding. Nehemiah leading by example, working hard, but also alert and ready to guard, so much so that they didn't even bother to change their clothes. You see, they were stinky, sweaty. You could imagine their B.O. But that's a good thing here because they were completely focused on God's work. They were completely absorbed in God's work of rebuilding and guarding the wall. Well, now we've worked quickly through this passage, and now we're going to tease out what all of this means for us as followers of Jesus today, asking how does this part of God's word remind us of the gospel, encourage us in living for the gospel, and challenge us to grow in the gospel. And the first application I want to draw out today is this. Know that there will be opposition. Know that there will be opposition. It'd be naive to say that Christianity, following Jesus, living for Jesus, is going to be a smooth sailing ride. Yes, there's going to be ultimate peace and comfort in trusting in Jesus 
that our eternal security is safe and sure, and that does mean that we can experience peace and comfort today, but on this side of eternity, know that there will be opposition to God and his people. You see, in Nehemiah 4, Sam Ballot, his jeering, his mocking, ridiculing, his threats, his opposition ultimately to God and his work, I think it reminds us a lot of Satan, the evil one, his jeering, his mocking and ridicule, his threats and temptations, his opposition ultimately to God and his work. You see, behind every act of opposition to God's people and his work, every act of persecution to God's people and his work is ultimately the evil one at work jeering and accusing, wanting to cause people to stumble, wanting to draw people away from God to stop God's will and plans. It's nothing new. It started in the garden, Genesis 3. Satan as a serpent opposing God's good creation, causing humanity to stumble, drawing Adam and Eve away from God. It's a mark of our fallen world. Satan jeering and accusing humanity, opposing God and his work. But for us, on the other side of the cross, we know that Satan is now a defeated enemy. You see, Jesus, the promised one, he defeats Satan. He defeats sin and death. He defeats all forces opposed to God. And Jesus did this as he died on the cross and rose into new life, taking away sins, Satan's power to hold sinners to the penalty of death by he himself satisfying the penalty of sin, which is death on himself. That's why Jesus is victorious over Satan and evil. Jesus, he's disarmed Satan. Jesus, he's defeated death. Jesus, he's won new life. That's why Paul in Colossians says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities. So as we live as foals of Jesus today, in this present age, as we eagerly await for the new creation, know that there will be opposition, that Satan still jeers and mocks and accuses and tempts foals of Jesus. Don't expect a smooth ride. Don't be surprised when there's opposition to God's work today whether it's in the church, in the workplace, in your family, wherever you might be, know that there will be opposition. But know also that Satan is a defeated foe, defeated as Christ won for us our salvation. The second application. It looks at our posture amidst this opposition. And the posture we see in this chapter is one of guarding and rebuilding, sword in one hand and trouble in the other. 
1865, the famous Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon, uh, he began publishing a monthly magazine. It was called The Sword and the Trouble. You see, Spurgeon, he was concerned about the state of Christianity at the time, where people, they were slow to the work of God, slow to mission and evangelism, and the truth of the gospel's also being slowly eroded by liberalism and entertainment in the church. And he picks this name, Spurgeon, based on Nehemiah chapter 4. And he says about it, Our chief aim will be to arouse believers to action and to suggest to them plans by which the kingdom of Jesus may be extended. We would ply the trouble with untiring hand for the building up of Jerusalem's dilapidated walls and wield the sword with vigor and valor against the enemies of the truth. You see, this is the posture of God's people at the end of Nehemiah 4, building the wall and guarding the wall, sword and trouble. And for today, for us, building good works in light of the gospel and guarding from enemies of God and the gospel. Building good works to trouble That's about getting to work, living for Jesus in all of your life, building his kingdom, his cause, just like we've talked about a few weeks ago, and guarding the gospel, not fighting in the sense of a holy war, but guarding the truth of the gospel against false teaching and guarding our hearts from the temptations and troubles of the world. And both of these guarding actions are against things originating from the evil one at work. The Apostle Paul talks about our spiritual battle in Ephesians 6. He says, put on the armor of God, the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul, he then goes through uh, this image of spiritual armor which climaxes in the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. This is how we guard against Satan's work in ourselves and in the church. Guarding the gospel, it centers on the Word of God, wielding the sword of the Spirit against the work of the evil one. Depending what church you're in today, I think you hear a lot about good works, living for Jesus, sharing for Jesus, but you probably don't focus as much on guarding the gospel. But if we think sword and trouble, we are to guard the gospel, to wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And as various teachings come and go, 
as various behaviours arise, to guard the gospel and to ask, does this align with the word of God? Does this align with the good news, the gospel of Jesus? I've been thinking a lot about guarding the gospel. Uh, We've thought about when uh, we've been doing our constitution review over the past years. And for me, as we read over the church discipline section, to be honest, I've been in churches, in churches who threaten uh, to follow, to go through this section, but I've never been in a church enacting church discipline. Maybe I've been blessed by having good people in my churches, but more likely, maybe we don't guard the gospel as well as we could in today's church, because church discipline It's really about guarding the gospel in our church, in our church community, in members who the church commits to uphold as people of Jesus. You see, in today's church, if someone holds a different theology, a funky theology, unless it's it's hurting someone or unless it's causing division, we usually just ignore it. If someone is living outside the gospel-shaped life, if someone isn't living for Jesus, unless it's hurting someone or unless it's causing division, I think we usually just ignore it. I focus a lot on guarding the gospel uh, because I think we've heard a lot about building good works over the past few months at Hertford Street. And I think for most of us, We're sold on building good works, but we may not be as sold on guarding the gospel. And God's word in Nehemiah 4, it it presents for us a posture of both actions together, building and guarding. So let me ask you, how are you going in this today, in this posture of building and guarding? Maybe you're a builder doing good works, but not a garter of the gospel. Or maybe you are a garter defending the gospel. You love defending truth and doctrine, but you're not a builder. Maybe you're not doing either as well as God would want you to. You see, living for Jesus, it looks like building and guarding the gospel, the sword and the trouble. We've seen two applications so far. Know that there will be opposition and this posture of sword and trouble. But our final application today, I think is really the overarching point coming out of Nehemiah 4. Because amidst the opposition and building and guarding, Nehemiah's reality, Nehemiah's truth through all of this. It wasn't relying on his or their efforts alone. It wasn't about how good their guard was or how great their building efforts were or how smart his strategic decisions were. Nehemiah's truth and reality was all about God. That the great and awesome, the saving and judging God, he was the one 
fighting the battle for Nehemiah and the people. We see it all through chapter 4. Their cry, their prayer, their hope was God will fight for us. God will fight for us. And this has always been the cry of God's people. God will fight for us, whether it be out of Egypt, in the wilderness, into the promised land, even as an exiled remnant. The hope and the cry of God's people has always been God. God will fight for us. And as we think about Jesus, this is the ultimate moment where we see this hope and cry that God will fight for us. You see, in Christ, God fought for us in the ultimate battle against the power of sin, against the dominion of darkness, dying on the cross and rising into new life. He defeated sin and death as he paid sin's penalty in full, as he won eternal life forever. And that means for us today, we have ultimate confidence as we build and guard. Because we know that God, he's already fought. He's already won the greatest battle for us. And that allows us to trust that God will fight for us today, that he will build, he will grow, he will vindicate, he will guard, and he will protect. So that even though there is opposition in the world today, while we build and while we guard, we trust that God will fight for us. As we finish off this morning, and Nehemiah 4 reminds us that yes, there will be opposition. And yes, be ready, sword and trouble, keep building good works and keep guarding the gospel. But Nehemiah 4 calls us to rest in this great reality for God's people. God will fight for us. If you're in Jesus today, God is with you and for you. He will fight for you. He's already fought the greatest battle for you. And he will fight for you and keep you to the end. And if you're not in Jesus today, wouldn't it be great to experience this great assurance that in Jesus, God is for you and that God has fought and won that ultimate battle against sin and death for you if you accept him as Lord and Savior. I love the lyrics and the joyfulness of the last song we're going to sing. Let's hear these words as we finish our time in the word. It says, sing with joy now. Our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now. No love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Neither height nor depth can separate us. Hell and death will not defeat us. 
He, God, who gave his son to free us, he holds us in his love. Sing with joy now, our God is for us. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful that you saved us in Jesus, that you have indeed fought the greatest battle for us, defeating sin and death and evil through the cross of Jesus, winning for us new life forever. Father God, as we face opposition and the darts of the evil one today, help us to keep building good works and guarding your gospel. Help us to do this in full confidence and joy, knowing that you are for us and that you have the victory in Jesus. We pray for these things in his name. Amen.